The Energy Department is developing a platform to monitor cyber threats to the nation's patchwork of electric utilities. It's part of the Biden administration's effort to shore up the cybersecurity of critical industrial control systems. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. And Justin, cyber threats are, I guess, really top of mind right now. Everyone's expecting Russia to turn the lights off in the Ukraine at any moment, and they're probably quite capable of doing that. What about the energy platform? What are they trying to do here? Right. Well, the Department of Energy has a four-part strategy now to secure the U.S. electric grid from cyber threats. Of course, we've seen Russia already shut down cybersecurity systems in Ukraine with the NotPetya attack back in 2017. So this is a, a very real concern. And the Department of Energy's work was really galvanized by a national security memorandum last year from President Biden that essentially directed agencies to shore up the control systems of the critical infrastructure sectors that they oversee. And this is operational technology, the technology that runs electric grids, not your email. And so it's a little bit different than IT systems. And so what DOE has been doing is getting energy utility, electric utilities to work kind of under a voluntary program to adopt monitoring systems. Kate Marks is acting deputy assistant secretary for preparedness policy and risk analysis at DOE. And part of that four-part strategy is just getting these utilities to adopt those monitoring technologies. Another part is sharing threat information. A longer-term goal is developing that, that platform that you referenced at the top where the Energy Department can essentially have automated threat detection and response across all these utilities that are run at the state and local level. Here's Marks talking a little bit more about the department's goals at an event sponsored by the cybersecurity forum Dragos. We wanted to make sure that we were thinking about advancing the adoption of technologies and systems that would allow utilities in the electricity sector greater visibility into the networks that really control system operations and help to improve all of our company's ability to detect, mitigate, and respond to cyber threats. And just as an aside, Justin, this should be familiar to electrical utilities because for decades they have shared reliability information through the different regional councils to try to prevent blackouts when some problem cascades down from network to network. So the idea of inter-utility communication, I think, should be something that they feel comfortable with. Or Do we have any evidence of that? Well, you're certainly seeing utilities participate in this voluntary program that the administration has set up. And as you mentioned, there is already an information sharing and threat analysis center that uh, for electric utilities, the, the Biden administration says more than 150 utilities uh, are participating in this voluntary program to adopt some monitoring technologies. So there does seem to be interest, but as we mentioned so often with critical infrastructure, it's all voluntary. There's no mandate. So sure. it's up to the goodwill and, 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 and logic of these companies to participate. And with respect to that monitoring, then, you are reporting also that a lot of the work seems to be going through a single company here. That's right. The firm we mentioned earlier, Dragos, uh, that sponsored the event, they run a service called Neighborhood Keeper. And it's described as a free, optional opt-in and anonymized information sharing network that Dragos offers to its customers where they can 
have their their systems monitored by Dragos and, and share information back, specifically industrial control systems. Now, the service was initially established through a Department of Energy award several years ago, but since the White House voluntary program was set up last year, it's seen a lot of interest from electric utility companies. Robert Lee, the, the founder and chief executive of Dragos, said a significant majority of the 150 utilities who participated in the pilot program turned to neighborhood keeper. The company also announced last week that both the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the National Security Agency have joined Neighborhood Keeper as trusted advisors alongside the Energy Department now. And that designation gives analysts at those agencies the ability to view the anonymized data in that program and also share threat intelligence back into the program. So it's really becoming a, a key service for agencies that are looking to shore up industrial control systems in critical infrastructure right now. Does this mean that Dragos is going to be kind of a sole source for the government as it looks to spread this monitoring program nationwide? Well, there are other companies that offer similar services. And of course, the government will say that they are going to turn to other companies as these programs mature. Mark Bristow is branch chief for cyber defense coordination at CISA. He said his agency is already working with some other vendors to get similar agreements in place beyond just Dragos. This is really partnering with other service providers like Dragos that have visibility platforms that we can kind of tap into in this kind of new and novel way, but allows our analysts to kind of move up the timelines for their analysis and how they can scale that analysis. And that's Mark Bristow, Branch Chief for Cyber Defense Coordination at CISA. And CISA is also working with the National Institute of Standards and Technology to develop cross-sector cybersecurity performance goals for control systems and critical infrastructure. And those final cross-sector goals are due in July. So stay tuned for that. All right. So things are moving. And what about paying for all of this? Is this something that the Energy Department is going to foot the bill for? And is there money for this kind of cybersecurity initiative? in the infrastructure bill? Well, that's where there's a lot of money for cybersecurity for critical infrastructure is in the, the big bipartisan infrastructure bill that, that finally passed last year. For the Energy Department specifically, they actually have a $250 million over five-year grant program for rural and municipal utilities to assist them in adopting some monitoring, detection, and response technologies for cybersecurity threats. They are also authorized to set up a $250 million R&D program specific to cybersecurity for the energy sector, as well as $50 million for operational support for a cyber resilience program and $50 million for monitoring and assessing energy infrastructure risk. So there's a lot of money on the line there in the infrastructure bill specific for cybersecurity. Now, Marks from the Energy Department mentioned, of course, the DOE has 17 national labs that do a lot of work in cybersecurity already. DHS and NSA also have their own research centers dedicated to advancing cybersecurity, and they are looking specifically at this industrial control system problem. We're really working together to identify, you know, how we can push R&D and make sure that, you know, companies like those that are on the line are really engaged in those efforts through different funding opportunities. Going back to the, the funding that might be available under the bipartisan infrastructure law, I think that's, you know, that's really going to help us invest in these types of infrastructure. And I think we'll see some, some great strides there. And I just have a question whether this came even up at that conference that you attended, but with all of these homes getting installed with solar 
panels on the roofs, on the garage, and so forth. You see it all over the place. And those solar panels, when the home that they're attached to is not using a lot of electricity, and say the sun is shining, those panels put electricity back onto the grid, at least in theory, for the utility to use. I wonder if that's a source of cybersecurity danger, someone whose house is wired in that way. That means they're connected to the utility and to its control systems, if indirectly, but at least in some manner. So did that come up? How many potential sources of cyber threats there are to the grid? That didn't specifically (laughs) come up during this conference. However, you know, I would say in the infrastructure bill, you saw direction from lawmakers for this funding and these programs to take into account two main threats, and that's, of course, climate change and then cybersecurity. And that's those two things are woven throughout this bill. So as agencies are overseeing some of these initiatives to adopt new technologies or newer technologies like solar panels and, and, and really respond to climate change, they're also having to take into account cybersecurity throughout infrastructure like they never have before because we have seen some real-world impacts from from these threats that affect critical infrastructure networks. All right. And so next on the energy front is pipelines, maybe, because that's a big cyber threat, big cyber danger. But TSA controls security of pipelines. So I wonder if this would be a joint DHS energy type of venture to protect pipeline infrastructure and the control mechanisms there. I guess too early to tell. Yeah, you're certainly seeing DHS take the point on these cross-sector performance goals that I mentioned, along with NIST, who sets the standards for cybersecurity. And you're seeing not just the energy sector, of course, worry about this issue. As you mentioned, pipelines with Colonial Pipeline being taken down last year by ransomware. They have now moved out into this industrial control systems initiative and is, is specifically the gas pipeline sector is working to adopt some of these monitoring technologies. Water and wastewater most recently was announced as now participating in this initiative as well. You're seeing several sectors start to adopt some of these newer monitoring technologies specifically for operational technology. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, or I sleep and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the DM. Make their mission your mission because they will not rest until we all rest.